Tonight we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, and so I'll give you a minute to turn there before we start reading together. We'll start in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its truth. And as we look into your word tonight, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things from your word. God, I pray that we will see Christ and him exalted and preeminent, God, and we will praise you, and glorify you as a result. And it's in your Son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. In the 1970s, an aspiring musician, Jonathan Cain, left his home in Chicago and traveled to Los Angeles to pursue his dream of making it big. But things weren't quite panning out, and during a particularly low point, a dejected Cain made a fateful phone call to his father, as Cain recounts. I called him for some money, for another loan, and I hated calling my dad for a loan. I said, Dad, 
Should I just give up on this thing and come home? No, no, he said, don't come home. Stick to your guns. Don't stop believing. I went, okay. Everything he would say, somehow, I would just doodle in my little notebook that I wrote songs in. And that's basically what happened. He said to me, don't stop believing. And I took it to heart. He sent me the money and great things started to happen. Well, Jonathan Cain went on to join the band Journey, where he turned that fatherly advice into one of the band's biggest hit songs of all time, Don't Stop Believin'. But for now, we're going to leave the 70s behind and go back to the 60s, the actual 60s, as in 60 AD, when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. So for a little background, um, the church at Colossae was most likely started by Epaphras, sometime during or shortly after Paul's three-year ministry campaign in the nearby city of Ephesus, which was about 100 miles to the west. Luke records for us in Acts 19 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And no doubt, Epaphras was one of those who heard Paul's message, believed it, and then took it back to his hometown and proclaimed it. Now, sometime later, Epaphras returned to Paul and reported to him the amazing work that God had done among the Colossian believers, and also to talk to him about some of the false teaching that they were tempted to believe. And it's not a stretch to imagine that this report from Epaphras is what prompted Paul to write his letter to the church. So let's look at the letter a little closer for some of the purpose statements that we find to see if we can get a grasp on Paul and Epaphras' heartbeat for the believers in Colossae before we jump to our text. So 1, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then in 1, 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then at the end of the letter, in chapter 4, Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So we see here that it was Paul's express purpose to warn and to teach the Colossians by proclaiming Christ with the goal of presenting them mature in Christ. And Epaphras, too, desired that the Colossians would stand mature mature, and be fully assured, and so he labored in prayer for them. Tonight, we're going to be taking a closer look at Colossians 1, 21 to 23. So let's read that again. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... 
he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So I want to look at our text tonight under three headings. So if you're taking notes, this would be um, a good thing to jot down. Number one, the bad news. Number two, the good news. And number three, a big if. So under our first heading, the bad news, it's there in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Up until this point in the letter, we see that Paul has had nothing but positive things to say about the believers in Colossae. He opens the letter by recounting their faith in Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints and how this gospel message had been bearing fruit and increasing among them from the very first day they heard it and believed. But lest they forget Paul takes this opportunity to remind the Colossians where they came from, and every human being has the same origin story. We're all born into this world in the exact same state, alienated from God and hostile to Him in our minds. First and foremost, we're alienated, alienated from God. Paul explains this in more depth in his letter to the Ephesians where he writes in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And later, in Ephesians 4, 17, he says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. So Paul describes who we are outside of Christ. Separated, strangers, darkened, Futile, ignorant, hard-hearted, without hope, and without God. In other words, dead. Remember God's promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, if we were reading this story for the very first time, we would half expect that after that very first bite, before the juice had dropped from their chin, they would have dropped dead. But they didn't, at least not physically. And as the story unfolds, we find out that their relationship with God, with each other, and with the world around them had been drastically altered. Instead of unity and fellowship, they were separated and estranged, alienated. But this alienation doesn't end in mere separation. Paul goes on to explain that they were hostile in their minds. We need to understand then that alienation from God 
doesn't simply result in a casual indifference to God. It leads to open rebellion against God. We're his enemies. Now, there are two truths that we need to keep in view as we consider what it means to be an enemy of God. First, God loves his enemies. And he gave himself for his enemies, as Paul says again in Romans 5, 8 to 10. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore now we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God, the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God loves his enemies, and we should too. And part of loving them well means keeping in view the second truth about God's enemies. God will punish his enemies. The wrath of God is real, and all those who remain alienated from God and hostile to him will experience the full force of his wrath. And even now, we begin to see God's wrath poured out on his enemies as he hands them over to their evil deeds, which is the next section of our verse. Now, there's a footnote in the NIV that gives an alternate translation to the end of verse 21. And is, in essence, it says that the alienation and hostility previously described are shown by our evil deeds. So I take this to mean that the alienation and hostility that we ignore and suppress is brought to our attention by the very visible doing of evil deeds. It's far easier for us to dismiss the alienation and hostility that we have with an invisible God than it is for us to dismiss the evil deeds that we commit in his very visible world. As Paul puts it in Galatians, the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. Or to put it another way, doing evil deeds is the very natural fruit that is born on the branches of a life rooted in alienation from God and hostility to God. And this is why the false teaching that was circulating in Colossae was so false, as Paul points out in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Religion, in this self-made sense, can only ever be concerned with managing fruit, the evil deeds, but it can never eliminate the root, our alienation and hostility. The Colossians were being tempted to shift their focus from Christ and his finished work on their behalf to themselves and their own self-salvation projects. 
and not much has changed since then. I think it's important to notice the order here. Our evil deeds are not the cause of the alienation and hostility that we have toward God. They are the result. Now, if they were the cause, it might be possible to imagine that we could somehow pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, get our act together, and restore ourselves to a right relationship with God. But in actual fact, we find that that is not the case at all. We are powerless to remove the alienation and hostility that stands between us and God. And even if we could, these verses remind us that we wouldn't want to. We are rebels. Don't stop believing the bad news. Paul labors to remind the Colossians just how bad things were. And like the Colossians, we so quickly forget where we came from. As soon as we make just a little progress in the Christian life, the temptation is so great for us to begin to shift our focus from Christ to ourselves, and we wind up like the Colossians, being taken captive by empty philosophy and deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So don't stop believing. Don't stop believing the bad news because it's what makes the good news so good. And we're going to look at that now under our second heading. The good news. Verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The good news of verse 22 stands in stark contrast to the bad news of verse 21. In the midst of the alienation, hostility, and evil deeds of the Colossians, God moves to act and acts with purpose to secure their reconciling salvation. Paul highlights two aspects of this reconciliation that we'll now consider. How and why. First, how were they reconciled? They were reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This reconciliation came at a cost. The cost of Christ himself, the preeminent Christ that he describes earlier in verses 15 to 20. Paul is not telling the Colossians anything new here. This is undoubtedly the same message that they heard from the very beginning. As Paul explains it to the Corinthians in his first letter, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we know that this wasn't unique to Paul's ministry to the, Col or to the Corinthians, but everywhere he went, indeed, he presented Christ crucified. So second, why were they reconciled? They were reconciled in order that they might be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Answering the same question in Ephesians, Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5, 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
This is the original purpose for ministry among the Colossians that we looked at earlier. Paul's aim was to present everyone mature in Christ. And because he has aligned his purpose with God's, God has reconciled the Colossians in order that he might present them to himself holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now there are two dimensions to this reconciliation that we need to keep in view. The already and the not yet. It is true that even now, in this moment, we are reconciled to God and stand before him holy, blameless, and above reproach. This is the already. But there is also a future dimension to this reconciliation. And one day, at the end of the age, we will be presented to him holy, blameless, and above reproach, the not yet. And keeping these two dimensions in view will help us when we find ourselves falling back to the old familiar patterns of what we was once described in the previous verse. Sometimes it can feel like we're still alienated from God. We can be hostile to him in our minds, and we definitely will find ourselves struggling to leave behind those evil deeds. But it's at this crossroads that we need to be reminded again and again and again that this is now true of us in our standing before God and will one day be true in our experience with God. Like the Colossians, we will be tempted at just this point to turn away from Christ and to look for some other means to close the gap that we still experience. But this is exactly what Paul warns the Colossians not to do. It's as if he's saying to them, don't stop believing. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In reconciling us, God dealt with our alienation. He dealt with our hostility, and he dealt with our evil deeds. God has come near in Christ. He took on flesh and dwelt among us so that we might forever dwell with him. No more alienation. God has called us his friends, and his kindness has melted away all hostility. And God has forgiven us all our trespasses, past, present, and future, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, by nailing it to the cross. Don't stop believing. Don't stop believing the bad news. Don't stop believing the good news. And now we come to our third heading, a big if. Verse 23, let's look at that. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is a big if. And we shouldn't be so quick to take the teeth out of Paul's warning here. But we do need to labor to understand it. So in order to understand what Paul does mean, it might be helpful if we first look at some things he can't mean. So one, he's not saying that the Colossians are in danger of losing their salvation. Two, 
He's not saying that it's up to the Colossians to muster up the ability within themselves to continue believing. And three, he's not adding anything new to the clear and simple gospel message. So what does Paul mean? Essentially, he's saying that if we leave Christ, if we don't continue in the faith, but instead we shift from the hope of the gospel, if we stop believing, then we have no hope that the above-mentioned reconciliation is actually true of us. If we attempt to add anything to Christ, then it's no longer Christ that we have. And Paul labors to remind us that Christ is everything. We also have no hope for believing that we will press on to maturity in the ways in which he describes in this letter. Continue in the faith. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Don't stop believing. So maybe you're here tonight, and like the young Jonathan Cain, things haven't quite turned out the way you thought they would or should, and maybe you're ready to give up. Consider these verses, a desperate phone call to your Heavenly Father, and hear Him say to you tonight, don't stop believing. But here's where things are different. It wasn't a sure thing for Jonathan Cain, and for every fairy tale ending like his, there are a million talented musicians who never made it big. But the gospel is a sure thing, and the hope offered to us in it is certain. The resurrection of Jesus is proof positive that his reconciling death on our behalf was accepted by the Father. And when in faith we believe, we can have absolute confidence that he will present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. So don't stop believing. Now for those bruised reeds and smoldering wicks among us, let's give the final words to Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.